Lovely. Thank you so much. <clears throat> hey, everybody. Welcome to the Scottsdale Big Book Study, where we will study the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Today's date is Saturday, the 25th of November. And my name is uh, Johan, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from Falun in Sweden. And I will be your host for today's study. Uh, Carl is here as well. Uh, and our co-hosts today are uh, Audrey, Dotti, Maria, and Sue Ellen. Okay, we ready yet? Johan, what, what sorry, yeah, sorry about that. It was a Russia the kids just rambling in. Sorry about that. So it's okay, it's all right. Now we go. Uh, if you if you have any questions during the meeting, please contact either myself or any of the co-hosts <laughs> by private message in the chat function. <clears throat> Uh, the chat function will be disabled until five minutes before the questions and answer session. Please note that the speaker Harlem G will be recorded for the duration of the study. However, the question and answer session which follows will not be recorded. Um, we ask if you please can make sure to keep your microphone on mute at all times during today's study. And also please turn off your video if you're exercising, eating, or if you need to step away from your screen for and for any reason. During the meeting, we will post the link to our seventh tradition. This money goes towards the cost of our Zoom account, the cost of uploading our recordings, and we will also send contributions to our intergroup and WSO. We will post a link to the previous week's recordings. These are available by clicking on the link that will be posted in the chat box. And sorry for the interruption. And here he comes, the man, <laughs> Lift the legend, Mr. Hoffman <laughs> Take it away. Thank you, you Johan. Thank you. Thank you very much. I am so glad to be here today. It is absolutely beautiful here in Scottsdale. It's going to be about 70 and there isn't a cloud in the sky. It's just a breathtaking day here in the desert. I hope it's pleasant where you are, whether you're listening on podcasts or whether you're listening live. I hope it's very nice where you are as well. Uh, last week, we talked about the meeting between Dr. Bob and Bill Wilson. And by the way, this is something you can use to impress your friends. Tomorrow, November the 26th, would have been Bill Wilson's 128th birthday. He was born on November the 26th, 1895. So tomorrow he would be 128 years old. And very few men in the annals of history have done so much for so many as Bill Wilson. He changed the world forever. He's one of those people. He was a very unlikely, I don't want to get off into a whole biography of Bill Wilson because I've read everything published on it, but uh, he, he was one of those people chosen by God. 
uh, to change the world. And he did a beautiful job of changing the world. And he opened the door for millions and millions of people that are suffering from addiction to come into these rooms and feel just as welcome, whether they're white, black, green, yellow, polka dot, Jewish, Catholic, born again, Christian, uh, Protestant, Buddhist, whatever they may be, we are all welcome under this flag, under this roof. And he made that possible with the work of his life. But anyway, without getting into that, Bill Wilson finds himself sober in 1934. And then in 1935, he is endeavoring to go out and proselytize sobriety. He's going out to spread the word of his newfound sobriety. And there was no AA yet. He was just a member of the Oxford Group Movement. And the Oxford Group Movement were not concerned at all with sobriety. They were not concerned with being any type of relief for a person who suffered from alcoholism. As a matter of fact, many of the Oxford Group movement people did not want the alcoholics in their midst because the alcoholics smelled and they they didn't have money and you know they would say you know this is almost Clancy Immelsen says that what would happen is they'd say we're really glad you're getting sober but you just puked on my shoe could you please go sit somewhere else they really didn't want these guys in their meetings in their midst they really didn't and in April of 1935, Bill Wilson comes home and he uh, and Lois came home and Bill was was they were home and they were going to go to the Tuesday night Oxford group meeting. It was a Tuesday. And Bill Wilson comes in. And he says, you know, Lo, I got this image from God that I'm supposed to go and sober up drunks, but nobody's getting sober. And she was getting ready and she was facing her dresser and she turned to him and she changed the course of the world when she said to him, you're staying sober. And for the first time in his adult life, he had been sober at that time, December to January, January to February, February to March, March to April. He had been sober five months and it never dawned on him that the miracle that he had experienced was that he himself at that point was staying sober. What a miracle. And Lois said to him, why don't you go see Dr. Silkworth tomorrow and ask him, because you don't leave for Ohio for a little bit now. She said, why don't you go see Dr. Silkworth and see if he has anything that would help you carry this message? So he goes to see Silkworth the next day and Silkworth says to him, I've heard about some of these shenanigans you're pulling out there, preaching to these drunks and proselytizing God to these drunks, and they just don't want to hear it. And he said to him, Bill, why don't you do for the drunks what I did for you? Why don't you explain to them about the hopeless feature of the of the alcoholic condition? In other words, the twist of the mind and the allergy of the body. 
And then once you have your their attention with the hopeless feature of this condition, now you can begin to focus on the God solution and things like that. And Bill Wilson leaves for Ohio. And the very first time that he is going to try the new method, it is going to be Mother's Day, 1935. And Mother's Day happened to have fallen on the 12th of May, 1935. And Bill Wilson is going to speak to Dr. Bob Smith. And we covered that last week. And Dr. Bob was in the Oxford group longer than Bill Wilson, but he wasn't sober. And so he really wasn't feeling very well. Henrietta Cyberling was friendly with the Smiths. Dr. Bob's last name is Smith. He was, she was very friendly with them. They were all members of the Oxford group together. And Henrietta Cyberling called up Ann Smith and said to Ann, why don't you bring Dr. Bob over? I have a drunk here from New York and he'd like to speak to Dr. Bob, which wasn't necessarily true. And so what I want to explain that he didn't care about speaking to Bob Smith. He just needed another drunk to talk to who just happened to be Dr. Bob Robert Holbrook Smith. So Dr. Bob comes over there and before they came there was Sunday and uh, he wasn't feeling too good on Saturday because he bought Ann a potted plant for Mother's Day and the potted plant was on the table and he was potted underneath the table, unable to do anything except piss in his pants and puke all over the floor. That was about all he was capable of at that time was just peeing in his pants and puking on the floor. So it is Mother's Day, 1935, and he elicits a promise from Ann Smith that after he gives this joker 15, this joker from New York, 15 minutes, that Ann will get one of her sick headaches and that they'll have to go. Well, they went up at 5 p.m. to the study in the Cyberling Gatehouse. The Cyberlings owned Goodyear Tire and Rubber. Akron's nickname is Tire Town. Harvey Firestone lived there, who owned Firestone, and the Cyberlings lived there, who owned Goodyear, and there was lots of rubber, lots of industry. Even though Akron is not a very big city, there was a tremendous amount of very vital industry there, and so it became known as Tire Town. And the Cyberlings had a beautiful gatehouse. The reason that she was living in the gatehouse was she was divorcing her husband. And uh, Bill Wilson was reticent to call her because he thought that it was the uh, wife of the older, the older Cyberling when it was the wife of the younger Cyberling that he was calling and that that family owned Goodyear and he wanted to do business with them. He didn't want to identify as an alcoholic, but he knew he, if he didn't talk to another alcoholic, he would indeed drink again. And for him, everything and anything was preferable to drinking again, even if he had to lose the opportunity to do business with them, he didn't care because he valued his sobriety more than he valued anything else. Very important for us to remember some of the little facts that surround the big facts. Sometimes those are very revealing as well. 
So it, they he goes up with Bob at 5 p.m. and Anne didn't have one of her sick headaches, but they came down at 11 p.m. six hours later. For six hours, they stayed upstairs and Dr. Bob came down the stairs and he said to his wife and Henrietta, this is the first man that ever understood my drinking. Well, why is that funny? The reason that it's funny is Bill never said anything about Dr. Bob's drinking. He never knew Dr. Bob. He didn't know Dr. Bob from a fire hydrant. He only spoke about his own drinking and his own drinking tallied so closely to what Dr. Bob had experienced. Dr. Bob related immediately. And, you know, Clancy Immislin says to us, when one alcoholic speaks to a second alcoholic so that the second alcoholic's feelings of differences are minimized to a point where the second alcoholic begins to take action after action through identification that he does not yet even believe in, it is at that moment that recovery can take place. And if you remember back in our lives, not their lives, our lives, at some point, we identified with the people in the meetings, the people that were speaking to us and so on. And so we began to take action after action that we did not yet even believe in. And so a recovery was affected therefrom. Very, very important. I don't come in here as a fireball of willingness. I come in here with fear and pain and frustration and negative attitudes and defeatist attitudes. I come in here self, full of self-loathing. I come in here full of doubt. I come in here angry at God. I know none of you can identify with any of that. But when one person spoke to me or another person spoke to me and I could identify with them. Now, that took me a longer time than I care to admit, because I have an ego that's as big as all outdoors. My ego is bigger than Earth. And I believe that because I, I was 30 years younger than anybody in that room, I was 24 years old when I came into these rooms, and I was hundreds and hundreds of pounds fatter than anybody in that room. And I believe that I was the only one in that room that hadn't been on a date yet. I had never held a girl's hand. My mother was dead. My dad was dead. I was living in a filthy, dirty, squalored apartment where the rent wasn't always paid. I had had my car repossessed twice, not once, but twice. I was traumatized by life. I was overwhelmed by life. And one day you came into my life. It was February 2nd, 1979. It was a Friday night. February 2nd is what we call Groundhog's Day. It's also George Hallis's birthday that owned the Bears, but it's Groundhog's Day. And I came out of that hole and I must have seen my shadow or not seen my shadow or something. I don't know. But the rest is history. And I'm here 44 years later. But 
Dr. Bob did not be did not re recover right away. He got sobriety, but he was a dry drunk because he did not agree to do any amends because he felt that if he went around and did amends, then people would know that he was an alcoholic. And so he didn't want anybody to know that he was an alcoholic. Now, this is the punchline on that. Well, the reason that that's funny is because the only one that didn't know that Dr. Bob was an alcoholic was Dr. Bob. And, you know, one of the things that is essential to recovery, and it's not unilateral, it's not just about our addiction, it's about all things. We have to have a certain amount of self-awareness and without a degree of self-awareness, what is my part in this? What is my part in that? It becomes extremely difficult, if not impossible to recover. Um, I had a friend who he passed away not long ago. He had almost zero self-awareness and he was in this program for a while too. Couldn't get, couldn't get the first base. He just had zero self-awareness. And that's one of the key characteristics that is so vital for recovery is a self, a, a, an awareness of self, an awareness of reality. Very, very important. But, you know, we are taught that the four impediments to God are uh, a resentment you will not let go of, a secret you will not tell, a, a harmful thrill that you will not stop. And what's fourth on that list? A restitution that you will not make. So Dr. Bob would not make restitution. He wouldn't, he wouldn't go around making amends. In June, when he came back from a medical convention that he had always gotten drunk from, and this was no exception, he now went around and made amends to these people. Now, amends is AA language. Restitution is Oxford group language. He made amends to them, and he never found it necessary to drink ever again throughout his life. He died in November of 1950 with 15 years of sobriety, 15 years of recovery. And Dr. Bob will become the co-founder of AA, not just because he was so vital, but because of default. You know, it, it, it should have been Ebby. It should have been Hank Parkhurst. But Ebby was drunk by September of 35. Hank Parkhurst was drunk by September of or, or August of 1939. Uh, it could have been uh, Ebby, for sure, it should have been Ebby. By all rights, it should have been Ebby that was the co-founder. And then it could have been Hank Parkhurst. Now, Hank had a lot more to do with the writing and the publishing of this big book than Dr. Bob ever did. Dr. Bob didn't have much more to do with the writing of this book than you and I did. You know, this, this idea that Dr. Bob was so instrumental in writing the book is a false notion. Uh, and we sort of uh, we sort of deify Dr. Bob, and that's great, and that's okay. But he was very, very human. He was very, very human. All right, we're on 156. 
156. And the reason that in my background, that painting, now, if you come to the vision convention, the next time they have one and no, in the questions and answers, don't ask me, I have no information on the next one. I do not know. I have no idea. But the picture, the original picture that's in Bill's home at Stepping Stones, it's right behind me. And that picture is called the man on the bed. And even though none of those paintings, painted people look like Dr. Bob Bill or Bill Dotson, this is to depict the visit that Dr. Bob and Bill pay to Bill Dotson in the summer in June of 1935. That said, let's go to page 156 and we're going to stop with the last, the first paragraph we're going to read is about Dr. Bob and Bill. And then we're going to talk about this number three man, Bill Dotson, who is very, very important in the history of AA. Let's go to page 156, but life was not easy. I'm in the middle of the page, 156, but life was not easy for the two friends. Plenty of difficulties presented themselves. Both saw that they must keep spiritually active. Now, how do you keep spiritually active? Well, you can pray and you can meditate and you can do all kinds of things. But what are they talking about specifically that goes beyond prayer and beyond meditation and beyond all that other stuff, which I'm not diminishing. I pray every day. I have a prayer partner and we do our 11th step in, in, you know, in the morning, I have a prayer partner and we do it. And uh, it's wonderful. I love doing that with another person. What, what, yeah, I think it's great. But when they're talking about spiritually active, what they're talking about is sponsoring, spreading the word, telling people who are drunk and suffering they're telling these people about the problem and the solution, okay? One day they called up the head nurse of a local hospital. This would be Akron City Hospital. They explained their need and inquired if she had a first-class alcoholic prospect. Now, the world has changed. If you call up a hospital today and ask them if they have someone suffering from obesity or compulsive overeating, which can be two separate things, they are not going to give you that information. This is in the days well before HIPAA. This is in the days before the privacy acts that we are governed by today. So, you know, don't be trying that because you're probably not going to get very far. She replied, yes, we've got a corker. A corker is a drunk. He just he's just beaten up a couple of nurses. Can you imagine how horrible he must have felt when this man wakes up from his drunk and finds out that he beat up a couple of nurses? Can you imagine the revulsion, the self-loathing, the reviled feelings that he has toward himself when he finds out he beat up a couple of nurses? Good Lord, my God goes off his head completely when he's drinking, but he's a grand chap when he's sober. And isn't that the truth for a lot of people? You know, a lot of us, 
not a lot of us, all of us, I didn't mean to say a lot of us, all of us are pretty good people. You know, we're pretty good people. But when we're when we're eating, it's very hard to be self-aware. It's very hard to see reality because we become eating machines. All we're thinking about is that next fix. All we're thinking about is eating and not eating, eating and not eating. And it becomes extremely difficult to function. But he's a grand chap when he's sober, though he's been in here eight times in the last six months. He just can't stop drinking. Understand he was once a well-known lawyer in town, but just now we've got him strapped down tight. Bottom of the page, this refers to Bill and Dr. Bob's first visit to AA number three. Now, that would be Bill Dotson, D-O-T-S-O-N. So don't call him Dobson or don't, you know, D-O-T-S-O-N, bottom of 156. Here was a prospect, all right, but by the description, none too promising. Okay, so why did they say he's not, why do you think he's not too promising? Because the guy's been in there eight times in six months. So you might feel that that's not a great prospect. Let me let you in on a secret. The more your prospect has suffered, the more your prospect has been dragged through pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization by this fatal permanent progressive disease, the more open they may be to healing, to recovery, because it's very hard to reach somebody who hasn't hit their bottom. And what happens when we hit a bottom? The only place to go is up. So the questions and the answers are going to be, how do I know I've hit my bottom? When you stop digging. I went, I was, I, I'm born and raised in Chicago. And on Saturday night, a lot of times, uh, this is to show you how vapid my social life was. But on Saturday night, I would go to the Lincoln Park Alano Club and they would have just marvelous speakers. And one Saturday night, they had a guy named Wino Joe Leith. Wino Joe. He's dead now. He's been dead for a long time. And very few of his recordings made it because he had a filthy, dirty, potty mouth. And a lot of people were offended. And at the front of the uh, room, in the uh, Lincoln Park Alano Club, there was a sign that says, lack of obscenity will offend no one. But Wino Joe, he had a real thick Texas accent. And he used to say, oh, the hell with them questions. You know, they have like 15 questions or 20 questions to determine whether you're an alcoholic. And he was from Texas. And so he had his own questions to determine whether or not you're an alcoholic. And he'd say, has the roof of your mouth ever been sunburned while you were drunk? If it has been, you're probably an alcoholic. And then he'd say, the second second question is, have you ever been uh, arrested for drunk driving while in jail? And he'd say, and the third one, have you ever been uh, have you ever been arrested for drunk and disorderly while you're in jail? He'd say, if you answer yes to any of these questions, hell, he'd say, you're probably a goddamn alcoholic. And that's what he'd say from the front of the room. And when he would speak, the room was packed. When Clancy Immeslin spoke here at the North Scottsdale Fellowship Club, you couldn't have got a mosquito. You couldn't have got a net in that room. I heard him here twice. 
And he was, but Wino Joe Leith, he was a character and uh, he had those questions uh, about, are you an alcoholic? And the place was just going bananas, just absolutely bananas. But one of the things he made very clear when he spoke is, how do you know you're at your bottom when you stop digging? And if you decide to stop digging, then this is your bottom. So you don't have to get validation from somebody else. You don't have to have me or anybody tell you you've hit a bottom. You can decide that you've suffered enough pain and you can stop digging. So put away your shovel, stop digging, put away your, you know, all your utensils of the disease, your anger, your fear, your doubt, your prejudice, your whatever it is, your self-loathing, and you can get into recovery at any moment that you decide that this is what you want. Here was a prospect, all right, but by the description, none too promising. The use of spiritual principles. What are the spiritual principles? The spiritual principles are the steps. You know, you get these people and they get started with the principle of this is honesty and the principle of that is love and the principle of that is that's not what Bill Wilson is talking about at all. That's stuff that came out decades after he was dead. When he's talking about the principles, he's using another word for steps. He calls them steps, principles, rules. He calls them those, he calls them different things. Uh, <clears throat> okay, top of 157 in such cases was not so well understood as it is now. But one of the friends said, put him in a private room and we'll be down now. There's a question that we ask in OA and AA and some sponsors will, will misrepresent what's in the book and they'll say you need 30 days of abstinence before you begin the steps. Other sponsors say you need seven days, five days, 10 days. What does the big book say? Here it is, two days later. So they let him stew in there for two days. And once Bill Wilson was sober for two days, he worked the steps. We're going to see them visiting Do uh, Bill Dotson after two days of sobriety. So if anyone should ask you today or tomorrow, how much, do you, how long, not how much, how long do you need to be sober before you can work the steps? Two days. That's what it says in the book. Okay. A future, two days later, a future fellow of Alcoholics Anonymous stared glassily at the strangers beside his bed. He didn't know who these guys were. He had no idea who these guys were. And here they are, they're putting them in a private room. And I'll tell you what he thought. I heard a, uh, a tape of his years ago, very thick Kentucky accent. And he, I heard it and I'm heard, going back 43, 44 years. I seen these two fellers and they were sitting by my bed in a private room and I thought they were the undertaker. So help me, I thought they were the undertaker. That's what he said. And he says, I thought they put me in there because I was going to die. And that's, and that's just how he spoke. He had a very thick, I, I probably can't imitate him very well. I'm not a great mimic. I'm okay. But I have a friend of mine. I have a couple, two friends of mine that are amazing mimics. I am not, I am not in that group. 
but he was just amazing. He thought these, he thought Bill and Bob were the damn undertaker. He says, I seen these two fellers and he puts an R in fellas. But anyway, all right. Stared glassily at the strangers beside his bed. Who are you fellas and why this private room? I was always in a ward before. He wasn't as curious as he was scared. From the tape I heard, he was scared that the reason he was in a private room is so that his wife, whose name was also Henrietta, we have Henrietta Cyberling and we have Henrietta Dotson. His wife was also Henrietta. He thought they put him in a private room so that Henrietta could say goodbye to him, that he was going to die imminently. And that's what he thought. And that was his fear. Hopelessness was written large on the man's face as he replied, Oh, but that's no use because they're talking to him about that they're alcoholics, they're drunks, and they found a way out. Nothing would fix me. I'm a goner. The last three times I got drunk on the way home from here, I'm afraid to go out the door. I can't understand it. I remember I spoke at a, it's a place called Bethesda Hospital. It's in Chicago. It's not a hospital anymore. It's condos. It's at Howard and Western, if you're keeping score. And they used to have the Raider Institute in there. The Raider Institute was there and Parkside was at Lutheran General Hospital out in Park Ridge. And I spoke there on Sunday nights at times. They used to have me come out. One time this guy, his name was Tony. I don't know whatever happened to Tony. Never saw him again. We watched him walk out of that hospital. Now I'm going to go back to 1982, 83, 84, whatever that might be, 85. I don't remember. Probably more 85, not, not early 80s, probably 85 or 86. 28,000 for 30 days in the treatment center, $28,000. He walks out of the hospital and across the street, there was an Amy Joy donut place. He walked out of the hospital and into Amy Joy donuts. That is this sickness. That is the strength. That is the power of this disease. That the reward for eating sugar or flour is so great. What does Dr. Silkworth say? We eat because we like the effect. We The effect is that sense of ease and comfort that comes instantly. We need that quick fix. The only problem is it doesn't fix anything for more than about eight seconds. And there you are. You got two problems. You've triggered the allergy and all your BS that you were dealing with before. Now you've got eating on top of the BS. So it's really not much of a solution, is it? I'm afraid to go out the door. I can't understand it. Page 157, middle of the page. For an hour, the two friends told him about their drinking experiences. And over and over, he would say, that's me. That's me. I drink like that. Now, when you get a newcomer at your meetings and you want to really know how to connect with that person, you do it through identification. I'll give you two secrets. Talk about yourself. Tell them about your eating. Tell them about the things that happened to you while you were purging, while you were starving yourself, while you were eating. They'll either identify or they won't. And remember this, the shortest distance between two people 
is a straight laugh. Get them laughing and you've got their attention. The shortest distance between you and another person is a straight laugh. Don't get them crying so much. You've got time for that. They're going to cry. You're going to cry. They're going to cry. But see if you can get them laughing. See if you can do something to crack that smile because that will give you a kinship like nothing else will. I'm not the funniest guy in the world, but I do try my best when I talk to newcomers. Get them laughing a little bit, you know, be a little off the wall. You know, you gotta you gotta have a little fun in life. And they're either gonna recover or they're not. But don't don't be so serious, you know. And then I went over there and you know, I I knew I was dying. Nobody wants to hear that. Nobody wants to hear that. We we, we need to hear some good things. We need to hear some other things. Okay, the man in the bed. Where'd we hear that before? That's the title of the painting. The next time I'm in Newark, Newark, yes, for the convention, uh, if I don't go with you, which I may, I've been there twice already, uh, but to go to Stepping Stones is like an honor. In Jewish, we would call it a mitzvah. It's like making aliyah. Aliyah is when you go to Israel. So you got to go to Stepping Stones. Here are the places you must go before you go. You must go to Akron, Ohio. You must go to East Dorset, Vermont, and you must go to Stepping Stones in Westchester County, New York. These are not negotiable. Get your tuchuses there before you die. It is very, very important that you get to these places because once you read Dr. Bob's story and then you see the back airing porch, you see the rooms, you see the things, and it makes more sense to you, you stand in that room in Dr. Bob's house where they got these guys on their knees doing a third step prayer. And it will, you, if you're not bawling within five seconds, you're probably not, a, you probably need to turn in your membership card to the human race. You've just been excluded. You go to Stepping Stones and you see Bill's violin and Lois's piano. And you see, uh, not Ruth Hawk, you see uh, um, uh, the bed for the secretary. What was her name? I can't even think of it right now. But the bottom line is, is that you have a situation where you're going to see where they live. You're going to go to Lois's desk this is where Al-Anon was founded. This is, it's going to say Lois Wilson. Lois Wilson and Ann Bingham started Al-Anon. This is the desk. This is Lois's inbox and Lois's outbox. And this is, this is the heartbeat of their life. This is where they lived. And then you're going to go up to Wits End. Wits End is a little cabin on the property where Dr. where Bill Wilson, not Dr. Bob, Bill Wilson wrote the 12 and 12, and he wrote the articles that he put in Grapevine. He started the traditions there. And you know what else you're going to see, which makes it a lot more human, is you're going to see the cigarette burns in the desk because Bill was a chain smoker, and you're going to see the cigarette burns on the desk, and it's going to make it a, come alive for you. I promise you. You go to Wits End, that's Bill's private writing place. You're going to go through their kitchen, and you know what else you're going to do? You're going to have a chance to sit at that kitchen table 
where Bill and Ebby were sitting that famous night in November when Bill pushed a drink his way and he refused it. Come, what's all this about? I queried. Smilingly, he said, I've got religion, but that is the kitchen table. I have pictures of myself sitting at that table and that is something I don't want you to miss. So if Vision announces a convention, great, because you can go to 182 Clinton, where they lived before, and then you can go to Stepping Stones. It's all right in that New York area, uh, or you can go there on your own. All right, the man, I'm on 157. The man in the bed was told of the acute poisoning from which he suffered, how it deteriorates the body of an alcoholic and warps his mind. There was much talk about the mental state preceding the first drink. So they're telling him about the situation of the mental twist. And the mental twist drove them into the liquor and um, he, he never knew that before. They're telling him about the allergy of the body. And they're telling him that when you drink it, <clears throat> It sets you up with a craving beyond your control. Oh, Bill Wilson's secretary was Nell, Nell Wing. Sorry, I, I couldn't think of it. I knew that like at three o'clock in the morning, I'm going to jump up and say, Nell Wing. But you're going to get to see how she was there and, and Bill and Lois was there and so on and so forth. Yeah, when you get to Stepping Stones, it's going to be quite moving. And you're going to see the original picture of what's behind me, the original uh, painting, the man on the bed is in that home. Now, don't think you're going to take anything with you because they're watching you. So don't think you're going to take any souvenirs. But uh, yeah, those are the those are things that you're going to see up there. Yeah, that's me. The sick man said the very image. You fellas know your stuff all right, but I don't see what good it'll do. You fellas are somebody. I was once, but I'm a nobody now. This is a disease of defeatism. We get very defeated. You know, we just feel like we're losers. From what you tell me, I know more than ever. I can't stop because they're telling him how hopeless his condition is. At this, both the visitors burst into a laugh, said the future fellow anonymous, damn little to laugh about that I can see. The two friends spoke of their spiritual experience because now they're going to hit him with the God stuff. And they're going to listen to Silkworth and they're not going to just hit him with God, 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 God before they tell this guy of the hopeless feature of the malady of alcoholism. The two friends spoke of their spiritual experience and told him about the course of action, the steps that they carried out. He interrupted. He, he thinks they're telling him about a specific church or religion. And he says, I used to be strong for the church, top of 158. But that won't fix it. I'm at the top of 158. I've prayed to God on hangover mornings and sworn that I'd never touch another drop. But by nine o'clock, I'd be boiled as an owl. And when he says boiled as an owl, that means drunk. That's all that means. Boiled as an owl. I must have been asked that a hundred times. What does that mean? What does that mean? It means drunk. It means drunk. If you said today, hey, I'm shit-faced or I'm, I'm wasted or whatever, it's the same thing. 158. Next day found the prospect more receptive. He's getting hope because he sees these guys recovered. He had been thinking it over. Maybe you're right, he said. 
God ought to be able to do anything. Then he added, he sure didn't do much for me when I was trying to fight this booze racket alone. And how many of us are identifying as chronic relapsers? You hear this every day. Hi, I'm Fred. I'm a chronic relapser. Hi, I'm Mary. I'm a chronic relapser. Well, you know what a chronic relapser is? It's a person that's engaged in a lot of self-pity, that's for sure. And they like that self-pity. But it's also a person that thinks they worked the steps but never did. What they're doing is they get this urge to eat and they try to fight it on their own willpower. So they keep going back to the food again and again and again and again and again because they're not working the steps. In other words, they're not bringing God into the equation. You have to bring God into the equation. How do you do that? You work the steps. What if you're just beginning? Make an outreach call. Don't try to put your dukes up in the ring and fight Muhammad Ali in his prime by yourself. Call for reinforcements. And what you need is God. And how do you bring God into the equation? Make an outreach call. Work the steps. Very, very important. If you're going to sit there and try to fight this urge to eat by yourself because you're scared to make that outreach call, eventually you'll probably eat. Eventually you'll probably be identifying yourself as a chronic relapser. You want different? You got to do different. You want different? You got to do different. You want different? You got to do different. I'm going to say that until I'm dead. Uh, possibly on my tombstone, I want either, it's not a program for people who want it, it's not a program for people who need it, it's a program for people who do it, or possibly I'm going to put down, you want different, you got to do different. And that's the key to my life is when I did the same, I got the same. I used to come home from meetings and I'd be thinking, man, that's pretty cool. You know, fear, false evidence appearing real. Wow, if you always do what you always did, you'll always get what you always got. And then I would call for a freaking pizza. And then I would call, you know, for, for uh, Chinese food or then, you know, whatever that might be. Nothing changed in my life because I wasn't working the steps. I was going to meetings and hearing a bunch of slogans. I was going to meetings and hearing a bunch of speakers going home and changing nothing. Nothing. And I didn't stop eating till I changed. On the third day, the lawyer gave his life to the care and direction of his creator. So on the third day, he's on step three. The wording originally of step three is made a decision to turn my will and life over to the care and direction of God. So how many of you today are going with your sponsors and you're on step three by the third day? I don't see any hands going up at all. Most of you are going so slow with these written assignments and these, these various distractions and all this various you know exits off the freeway that we're dying. And we're dying in great greater numbers than we're recovering. 
we're dying in greater numbers than we're recovering. And if we're going to change that, that means we have to go through quickly, not slowly. Notice they didn't say to him, you better read Drop the Rock. I'm not knocking Drop the Rock. Great book. You got to read Drop the Rock and you got to do your written assignments. You got to answer 82,000 questions. And now you got to do a thing, an evaluation of your character assets as well as your. They didn't tell him that. They're bringing him through quickly. He's and said he was perfectly willing to do anything necessary. How do you turn your will and life over to God? By doing four through 12 every day for the rest of your life. How do I know you've taken step three when you're walking around with a notebook and a pencil and a clipboard doing your fourth step? That's how I know you've taken step three. You can't just say, well, I took step three and you're not doing your fourth step. That's like saying, I'm making a vow to go to the store. And then you don't go to the store. People would look at you like you're nuts. This is, the, this is what you see in OA every day. I'm doing my third step. Well, when are you going to do fourth step? Well, maybe in a week or two. That's not, the, uh, that's not the gist of the step, boys and girls. That's not the gist of the step. We're on, in the middle of 158. He had begun, oh, wait a minute, I'm sorry. His wife came scarcely daring to be hopeful because she had been disappointed so many times. Though she thought she saw something different about her husband already. And that's why you read, I read with my prayer partner on page 63. On page 63 of the big book, every day we read this book, this these words. Um but it's better to me. This was only a beginning, though if honestly and humbly made an effect, sometimes a very great one was felt at once. That is the last sentence in the second to the last paragraph on page 63. Sometimes by just accepting that God is going to help me, it gives me confidence, confidence in myself, hardly confidence in God, confidence in God that he is going to do for me what I cannot do for myself. Because remember when I was doing step two, I, get, I got a definition of God that is benevolent rather than punishing. I got a definition of God that is helpful, not hurtful. Because I came in here with a lot of reasons to be angry at God. Very angry at God. Very hurt by God. My mom was dead. My dad was dead. I had nobody. My, my friends, they were going on with their lives, marrying and starting businesses and, and, and graduating college and doing this. and doing. I was a lost lamb. I was a freaking lost lamb. I didn't know whether to punt or play defense. I didn't know which end was up. He had begun. Oh, wait a minute. Sorry, I keep losing my place. His wife came scarcely daring to be hopeful, though she, she thought she saw something different about something different about her husband already. He had begun to have a spiritual experience. For some, it happens earlier than others. I didn't have anything at step three. I had my spiritual awakening as the result of the ninth step, not the third, but for you know, different people, di different things. That afternoon, I'm on 158, middle of the page. He put on his clothes and walked from the hospital a free man. 
he entered a political campaign making speeches, frequenting men's gathering places of all sorts, often staying up all night. He lost the race by only a narrow margin, but he had found God and in finding God had found himself. And his opponent in this political race used his alcoholism against him to make himself win the election and, and Bill Dotson never drank. Now, I want to again point out where the, you know, this question comes up all the time. How do I know you're right about working the steps quickly? Well, this was in June of 1935. When did Dr. Bob get sober? He got sober on June 17th, but they say June 10th. Okay, let's go with June 10th, even though that date is wrong. He got sober on June the 10th, 1935. This was the end of June, 1935. Show of hands, how many of you are sponsoring within weeks of beginning the steps? Nope, I don't see any hands. Dr. Bob and Bill were out there spreading the word quickly rather than slowly. Dr. Bob got sober on June the 10th, 16 days, June 26th was when they met with Bill Dotson, 16 days. And Bill Dotson was not the first person that they had tried to help. He was the third person. The first two didn't want this, but Bill Dotson did. So within days of getting sober, Dr. Bob was out sponsoring. So please understand that the faster you consummate this program, not the program, the faster you consummate the process, which is the program, I guess, the more effective it becomes. Very, very effective. That was June 1935. He never drank again. And Bill Dotson will die in 1954 with 19 years of sobriety, right? 35 to 54, isn't that 19 years? My math is crappy. But okay, let's just say 19 years. He will never drink again as long as he lived, not one time did he drink. He had become a respected and useful member of his community. He has helped other men recover and is a power in the church from which he was long absent. Now, the next person that we're going to talk about is Ernie Galbraith. And Ernie Galbraith is going to almost become alcoholics number four. One of the things he is going to do is he's going to marry Dr. Bob's daughter, Sue. And that's going to be a whole other story. We'll kind of get into that more next week. But let's let's take this paragraph. So you see, there were three alcoholics in that town who now felt they had to give to others, not sit there and twiddle their thumbs, not sit there and say, I'm not going to sponsor. They didn't worry about being the perfect sponsor. They didn't worry about results. They went out and sponsored for themselves because that's the only way that they're going to, they're going to survive. You, you, you sit and you worry about, well, I don't, I, I don't know what to say or I don't know what to do. That's why we're here. That's why you let the big book do most of the heavy lifting. 
And if, if they want to recover, you can't say the wrong thing. If they don't want to recover, you can't say the right thing. The results of who recovers and who doesn't is not in your hands. If I had a dime for every person I've sponsored through the years that's knee deep in donuts and ice cream today, I would never have to work again throughout my life. I would be wealthier than Midas. They wouldn't be able to count my money. I'd have a penthouse on top of Tribune Tower in Chicago, or uh, I'd, yeah, I'd be living on Michigan Avenue in, in, in the summer, and I'd be living here in Arizona during the winter, and I'd be living up in uh, Greyhawk, or I'd be living in Troon, or I'd be living in one of those places here in Arizona. I'd be a snowbird. And I'd have fancy cars in both places and I'd have more money than I'd know what to do with because I have sponsored hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of men who never recovered, but I'm in recovery. And that's the point. Don't wait to be the perfect sponsor. You'll die. Don't wait to know what to say when you, nobody knows. You let the big book do the heavy lifting. And if you have questions, ask us. We are here for you. Who now felt they had to give to others or uh, what they had found or be sunk, sponsor or die. After several failures to find others, a fourth turned up. He came through an acquaintance who had heard the good news. He proved to be a devil-may-care young fellow whose parents could not make out whether he wanted to stop drinking or not. Sometimes, you know, you want to stop, but you got a bottle in your hand and it's going down your throat. They were deeply religious people, much shocked by their son's refusal to have anything to do with the church. He suffered horribly from his sprees, but it seemed as if nothing could be done for him. He consented, however, to go to the hospital where he occupied the very room recently vacated by the lawyer. So you see now we're going to begin next week by saying he has three visitors. Bill Dotson didn't sit there and let grass grow under his feet. He got moving with these guys and he went with them to visit Ernie Galbraith days after he was sober because he worked through the program quickly rather than slowly. That's very, very important to note. And that's very, very important. So before I turn this back over, I want to remind you that if you are coming, I hope you will, to please come to the birthday in Los Angeles. I'm doing the big book study this year. There's going to be wonderful speakers. There's going to be wonderful um uh, workshops, lots of people, lots of fellowship. There's going to be an opening ceremony on Friday night. I know who the opening speaker is, and they're going to kick your butt. They're so good. And then Saturday, lots of meetings, lots of fellowship. There's going to be a vision meet and greet, sponsor, sponsee meet and greet. There's going to be a luncheon speaker. There's going to be a dinner speaker, dinner dance. There's going to be a dance after the speaker. Sunday morning, sober eating workshop. I'm going to finish up the big book workshop. Sunday is the closing ceremony. It's going to be great. We need you. 
uh, oabirthday.com. Could it be easier? Oabirthday.com. I hope to see you in Los Angeles. Now, before I turn it over, if you asked a question last week, would you please hang back until it slows down, hang back and let people who didn't ask one last week come to the forefront and no food questions. Let's not waste time with food questions. I am not a nutritionist and I do not play one on television. And please, no math questions, okay? No math. All right, I'm going to turn it back over to Mr. Johan. Uh, I'm going to turn it back over to somebody. I'm going to start with Johan and we'll go from there. Thank you, Harlan. Thank you so much. Once again, I feel enlightened by your studies. Thank you so much. And I will turn it over to Dr.